I am not ashamed to admit that I enjoy a good mystery story, whether it's a book or a good detective program on TV. Anyone else like this kind of genre of story? Excellent. I, I love the way that mystery writers carefully plant clues for us to find. I love joining the dots and hopefully discovering where all the evidence points. It's kind of edge of your seat watching or reading because I think the author wants us to lean in and look for the clues that he's planted. And I wonder if the human author of the book of Esther may have enjoyed this kind of story. Because the great mystery at the heart of Esther is that the name of God is never mentioned in this book. Which is especially odd, considering that this book is in the Bible. It can actually throw you the first time you come to read the book of Esther. But in never once mentioning God, the author is in fact doing something very clever and enticing. He's inviting us as readers to lean in and detect God's activity in the story for ourselves. The writer wants us to be keen detectives as we read because he has deliberately dropped clues everywhere for us to find. And actually, once you begin to look for these clues in the book of Esther, we quickly begin to see God's hand at work in practically every twist and turn of the story. Though he's never mentioned by name, this story is overflowing with incredible coincidences and dramatic reversals that just have God's fingerprints all over them. And that's actually one of the ways that the book of Esther can help us in our Christian lives today, some two and a half thousand years after it was first written. At first glance, God seems to be absent from this book. And sometimes, if we're honest, it can seem like God is absent from our own daily lives as well. Especially when it perhaps feels like life is not going quite how we planned it. And perhaps you're here this morning feeling precisely that way and you're wondering, where is God in this? In my sickness, in my suffering, in my sadness, in my pain, in my difficulties, where is God? The book of Esther is a gift given to reassure us that not only is God not a missing character from the drama of our lives, he is in fact the wise and providential author of every single detail of our lives. He is active in every circumstance, as we'll see, in every blessing and every trial, often in the most unexpected ways, working all things for our good. And Esther is here to encourage us to trust in that fact, to trust in what we call the loving providence of our God, whether we can personally see him at work right now or not. That's one of the reasons, amongst many, that I'm so excited, we're so excited that we are going to be reading the book of Esther together this month. This morning, we're going to do this short flyover of the story that will hopefully equip us and excite us for our reading over the next few weeks. The best way to get to know the book of Esther is really to jump down straight into the story itself, which we're going to do in a moment. But let me just take 60 seconds to set the scene first. The events of Esther take place in the latter days of the Old Testament, 
One way to find it in your Bible, and if you're still searching, although it seems like everybody's there, is that it's actually the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. That's how late in time it is before you get into the wisdom literature of Job and Psalms and Proverbs and so on. It's set over a hundred years after God's people go into exile in Babylon. So you might think about the book of Daniel for those sort of events when they went to Babylon. This is over a hundred years later. Some of the Jews have now returned to Jerusalem. Think of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But many have not. And this story is about a Jewish community who've not returned, but they've made their home in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. Now, there are lots of characters, but four main characters to look out for in this book. First of all, there are two Jews, Mordecai and his younger adopted cousin, Esther. Then there's the king of Persia, whose name I still struggle to pronounce, uh, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes in the Greek. And if you've got, uh, I think you've got an NIV, it actually says Xerxes. And then there's Haman, a Persian official who is like the real villain of the piece, as we'll see. So four main characters, one sweeping story from start to finish. But just to help us this morning, I'm going to break it down into five sections as we go. So section one, part one, the emperor's clothes. This is chapters one and two, the emperor's clothes. The book of Esther opens with the king of Persia throwing two great feasts lasting a total of six months. It's an amazingly long party. All for the purpose of, chapter 1, verse 4, displaying the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. The king basically wants everyone to know how great he is. And the narrator begins by going into great detail about the grandeur and the opulence of the curtains and the couches and the pavements and the wine glasses. And you could... I, as I read this bit, I imagine him doing perhaps his best Lloyd Grossman impression. Anyone remember Through the Keyhole, if you're old enough to remember that? Who would live in a palace like this? But it's actually all a bit tongue-in-cheek. What quickly becomes apparent is how limited and empty the king's greatness truly is. On the last day of the feast, this massively long feast, when the king is heavily under the influence of wine, he demands that his wife... King Vash, uh, Queen Vashti be brought before his guests to show off her beauty. He's been showing off all of his possessions, and in his mind, she is his greatest possession. He wants everyone to see her and so be impressed with him. But she declines. She declines. Now, this is the first of the many ironies in the book of Esther. Here is a king who wants people to think he has everything, great power, unending riches, and a beautiful trophy wife, but Vashti will not come. And suddenly and publicly, his power and his might and his prestige are all revealed for what they truly are. They're, they're a sham. They're empty. The emperor has no clothes, and everyone sees it. And the noble king, the God King, who rules 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, does the only thing he can do. He has a temper tantrum. And in his anger, he decides that Vashti must never again enter the presence of the king, which is, of course, the very thing that she didn't want to do anyway, but that's lost on him. And he issues, 
He issues then a ridiculous law as well to go out to every household in the kingdom, in case actually they've not heard about his embarrassment, telling every woman to give honor to her husband, as if lawmaking will solve his own personal problems at home. Now, numerous times the book of Esther reveals to us the true nature of the world and its ways, and we're meant to laugh at the absurdness of it. One uh, writer I was reading this week, I love how he captured this. He said, if we were to uncover the original manuscripts of Esther, I think we'd find a number of places where the writing was erratic and shaky because the author was laughing so hard at the absurdity of human power, flexing its muscles and posturing at problems it cannot fix. Or if there were a text message version of the book of Esther, uh, it would be filled with laughing emojis. Now, when the king's anger has finally abated, the king commands that there be this empire-wide beauty contest in order to find himself a new queen. And it's here that we're introduced uh, to our two main characters, uh, Mordecai and Esther. Now, it's not clear from the start whether Esther is taken willingly or unwillingly into the contest. Given the king's orders, she likely had no choice. But once entered, she throws herself into the process. Hiding her Jewish identity, she ultimately wins the pageant and becomes the new queen of Persia. And soon after, Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin and guardian, and also a a civil servant in the king's courts, just so happens to overhear a plot to assassinate the king. And he reports it to Esther and ultimately saves the king's life. Uh, The two men are executed that were plotting, And in an important detail that seems really insignificant on the first read-through, the whole affair is recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, it's just two chapters in. It's already an intriguing series of events when you think about it. A lowly Jewish immigrant orphan girl raised up to be married to the most powerful ruler in the world. And that same girl's cousin and guardian, Mordecai, discovering just by happy chance a dastardly plot to murder the king. There's no mention of God here at all. But surely we begin to detect some kind of providential hand at work in what's taking place. The author wants us to lean in and read on and look for more clues. So, second section, second part of Esther called The Enemy's Hatred. This is chapter 3, The Enemy's Hatred. Chapter 3 introduces us to Haman. And if we were at a pantomime, we'd all boo and hiss at this point. The king promotes Haman to become the head of the government and the king's right-hand man. Think about uh, Joseph being raised up in Egypt to that kind of position. And all the king's servants are commanded to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Mordecai, of course, is one of those servants but he refuses to bow. And now it's Haman's turn to have a temper tantrum. When he then discovers that Mordecai is also a Jew, his fury turns murderous. And instead of simply punishing Mordecai, Haman decides to persuade the king to set a date for an empire-wide genocide to massacre every single Jewish person in the land. And he decides the date of this holocaust by casting lots called Pur. 
the equivalent of us rolling a dice. In 11 months' time, the date is set, in 11 months' time, every Jew will be killed. So what's going on here? Why has everything escalated so quickly out of control? The clue actually is in chapter 3, verse 1. Have a look there. One of the most important things that the author wants us to know about Haman is that he's not actually a Persian, but an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. And you can read more in 1 Samuel 15, perhaps in the next couple of weeks. And therefore, as an Agagite, as, a, as a, one of the descendants of the ancient Canaanites, he is, chapter 3, verse 10, the enemy of the Jews. Here's why Mordecai won't bow to Haman. Here's why Haman wants genocide, not just justice. This isn't just two individuals facing off in a, in a neighborhood dispute, in a personal dispute. This is another round of an age-old conflict between God's people and their enemies. As someone I read this week put it, between another round in the age-old conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And right now, things are looking really bad for God's people. Which is why in chapter 4, we'll see as we read it, the camera zooms in to show us part 3, Queen Esther's dilemma. Queen Esther's dilemma. Remember, at the moment, no one in the royal court, including Haman, knows that their, their, uh, that their queen, Queen Esther, is a Jew. No one knows it. But Mordecai, in now great mourning and distress at the king's decree, pleads with Esther to intercede with the king on her behalf, on their behalf, and on the behalf of the people. Now, at first, Esther refuses because everyone in the empire knows, chapter 4, verse 11, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. It's a suicide mission, if you like. But in what is perhaps, what is surely one of the most profound and important statements in the whole book, Mordecai responds in chapter 4, verse 14, with these words. If you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, this is the, um, the strongest hint yet of Mordecai's own personal belief in divine providence. Maybe Esther has become queen for just such a moment as this. It's also the greatest clue for us as readers so far that God has in fact been intimately involved in every detail of the story right from the beginning. Silently weaving his redemptive tapestry throughout the lives of real people living in a very dark and fallen world. And Esther, with perhaps renewed faith herself now in God's providential care, makes the courageous decision to try and intercede with the king. She will step forth as the people's mediator, even though it might lead to her death. Chapter 4, verse 16, she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. David Strain writes this and so helpfully points us forward to uh, a greater mediator than Esther. He says, as Esther's words ring in our ears, Resounding with notes of courage and faith and heroism, 
It's hard not to hear in them an echo of another Saviour's words, spoken at the greatest decisive moment of them all. In the garden, staring into the gloom of Calvary, the submission and resolve we see in Esther are surpassed and fulfilled in the one to whom she points us. As the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Father in heaven, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Like Esther in the citadel of Susa and for the exiled Jews of the empire, so now for God's elect, in every place and in every age, at just the right time, in the fullness of time, for just such a time as this, God has raised up a Savior in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But whereas Esther risked all to intercede for her people, we have a better mediator, one who did not merely risk all, but who laid it all down and died for his people. What Esther confessed as a possibility, Jesus owned and chose as a necessity. For us and for our salvation, he died that we might live. Glorious. Part four, we have an extraordinary reversal. This is chapters five to seven. Now, one thing to look out for as you read through the book this, this month is that time slows right down when you get to chapters five to seven. The events of chapters one and two took pla uh, take place over a period of about four years. Haman concocts his plan then in chapter three when Esther's already been queen for about five years. So chapters one to four... Uh, cover events over about a nine-year period. But now, from chapters 5 to 7, we, we read in vivid, edge-of-the-seat detail about events that take place over just two days. The pace slows right down, and every detail is savoured in these three chapters. And we're meant, again, to lean in even further, almost holding our breath with anticipation to know what is going to happen and where everything is leading. Chapter 5 begins with Esther proposing to host a very exclusive banquet for herself and the king and Haman. And at that banquet, she tells them that she wants to host another banquet the next day and make a very special request of them. And Haman leaves this first banquet very drunk and very chuffed with himself for being invited to such exclusive dinner parties. But then he sees Mordecai again in the street, and he is filled with wrath. And he decides to build a gallows 23 meters high, 75 feet high, on which to hang Mordecai the next day. Now, if you can imagine that kind of height, this is a ridiculously tall set of gallows. Uh, I guess requiring a, a ridiculously tall ladder even to get him up there. But it is very much like Haman's ridiculously big ego. And we're surely meant to start to wonder here as we're reading, who's going to end up on these gallows? In a story that's already been full of sudden and unexpected events, will it be Mordecai as Haman plans? Or will it in fact be someone much closer to home? Well, we read on and we will find out. Right now, of course, things are looking pretty bad for Mordecai and the rest of God's people. Things have been getting progressively worse. The, the first half of Esther is sort of a downhill, uh, slippery slope. Things getting worse for God's people, for Mordecai and Esther, throughout the first five 
chapters, even as things have been getting increasingly better for Haman. But everything is about to change. And there's, in fact, this incredible symmetry to the book of Esther, to the whole book. And the hinge point is found right in the middle of the book in chapter 6. All of a sudden now, the story pivots. The tables are completely turned because the invisible God is at work. It just so happens that on the same night that Haman is plotting and staying up late to start work on his gallows, the king is also up because he can't sleep. And so he gives orders for someone to read to him from the book of memorable deeds, from the book of the Chronicles, perhaps to help him drift off. Maybe you do this at night if you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. You pick up a slightly dull book and hope that it'll send you off. Well, it just so happens that they turn to the record of how Mordecai once saved the king's life, which the king has completely forgotten about, and worse still, for which Mordecai was never uh, rewarded. Now, this is a real embarrassment for the king. The, The kings of the ancient world, of Persia especially, were well known for their generosity in rewarding those that served them. Something must be done immediately to make this right. And so early in the morning, the king asks which of his officials is already up and nearby to put things right, to start to get the ball rolling. And it just so happens that this very morning, Haman is there, perhaps keener and earlier than ever, because he's eager to speak with the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows. God's timing here is impeccable. It's it's exquisite as we read it. invisibly and still without an explicit mention in the text, he is clearly at work to protect his people and reverse their fortunes. And so before Haman can make his murderous request, the king asks him a fantastic question. And uh, it is difficult not to laugh out loud as we read it. It's almost slapstick comedy. Chapter 6, verse 6, the king asks Haman, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman, of course, who has a 23-meter-high ego, assumes that the king must be talking about him. Verse 6, Haman said to himself, Well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And so he lays it on real thick in the answer he gives him. And Verse 7, And Haman said to the king, Well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman wants to be treated like the king. And then with delicious irony, the author tells us, verse 10, the king said to Haman, well, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Haman's plan has completely backfired. He has no choice now but to lead Mordecai through the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. And so begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Only God could have planned this so perfectly. But the danger, the big danger, of course, is not over yet. 
The camera remains zoomed right in in chapter 7, where later that same day, Esther hosts her second banquet with Haman and the king. Mordecai is out of trouble for now, but the Jewish people are not. So this is the crunch point now for Esther, where now she must risk everything. And at the banquet, she makes an impassioned plea. Verse 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. This is a heart-stopping moment in the story. But it's, it's an incredibly dangerous moment for Esther. Esther has finally revealed her secret Jewish identity in the presence of Haman, her mortal enemy. But in order to save her condemned people, she has to identify with those very same people by revealing that she too is a Jew. Or to put it another way, in order to secure their redemption, she must place herself under their death sentence. And again, as we read, we can't help but see her actions pointing us forward toward the Savior who is to come. One day, God the Son would step forward and stoop down to be identified with each one of us, taking on flesh, becoming a man, in order that he might place himself under our death sentence and so die in our place to secure our redemption. Jesus knew that our rescue would require his death. Esther, though, has no idea what's about to happen next. In verse 5, we see the king's reaction. Then the king said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, and uh, I imagine maybe she stands up now and is, is pointing this ominous finger at Haman, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And at Esther's words, Haman's face grows pale with terror. The king rises furious from the table and storms out into the palace gardens. And in the meantime, Haman, who now realizes that everything has turned and what, realizes what a terrible slippery slope of misfortune he's been sliding down that day, remains behind to throw himself on Queen Esther's mercy and beg for his life. It's another incredible reversal. You remember the trouble all began when Mordecai the Jew wouldn't fall down before Haman, the enemy of the Jews. But now Haman falls down before the Jewish queen Esther. And at just the wrong time, or is it the right time, as Haman throws himself on Esther's mercy and is literally falling on the couch where she's seated, the king re-enters the room and mistakes what's happening before him for a brazen assault on his queen. Haman's fate is sealed. And at that moment, a helpful chap in the background, verse 9, called Harbiner, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, he helpfully interjects, uh, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated Haman's great pride has been his great downfall, and he is literally hoisted on his own petard. 
And then finally, in part five of the book, we see God's enemies defeated. This is chapters 8 to 10. The crisis is not immediately over, but but circumstances are now working at uh, full speed in reverse. Haman has been executed, while Mordecai is elevated to be the king's second in command throughout the empire. The edict against the Jews is still in place, but Esther pleads again with the king to allow the Jews to act in self-defense, and the king agrees, issuing a decree to all of the Jews throughout the empire that on the appointed day, they should defend themselves and destroy any who have plotted to kill them. This new decree is a blow-by-blow undoing of Haman's original one in chapter 3. It is literally uh, triumph being snatched out of the jaws of defeat. It is death swallowed up in victory. When the day finally comes, the Jews throughout the land do as they've been commanded, and they triumph over their enemies, leading to much joy and feasting and gladness. And finally, the events of those few days are immortalized to be remembered in a new annual festival called Purim to commemorate the deliverance of God's people from their destruction. And the name of the feast, in case you're interested, comes from Haman's casting of lots in chapter 3, which is surely a final nod of the head to the fact that God, whose name is nowhere to be found in the book of Esther, has in fact been in control all the time, even in the minutest details like the rolling of a dice. As it says in Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now before we finish, I just want us to step back and think about the story as a whole, these 10 chapters together. What can we look out for and be looking out for and learning from the book of Esther as we read it together this month. Well, I think two things especially that we've seen. The first thing the book of Esther does is it exposes the emptiness of our fallen world. It exposes the emptiness of our fallen world. The mighty Persian Empire, which was epitomized by its angry, drunken, godlike king, looks so impressive at first. But very quickly, the curtain is pulled back and its true emptiness and hollowness is revealed. Haman, the enemy of God's people, seems unstoppably deadly and terrifying at first. But in the end, he becomes a laughingstock, destined for a pitiful end. This book helps us to see that all the promises of our glittering world with with all of its empires and its glamour and its boasting and even its threats are ultimately empty and hollow just beneath the surface. The things of this world are not worth giving our lives for or even living in fear of. They're all going to come to an end. And if we can see the world's emptiness for ourselves and even be ready to laugh at its folly sometimes, we'll find ourselves much stronger to resist its seductive powers as well. So the book of Esther is a bit like an inoculation for us against the world's charms so that we'll see it as it really is and resist its seductive powers. And the second and even more prominent theme in Esther is this. Esther assures us that God is always faithful to protect and do good to his people, even when he works in ways unseen. His unseen hand lies behind every single event in this book. From the dismissal of Vashti to the choosing of Esther 
from the discovery of the assassination plot to Haman's evil schemes, from Esther's willingness to be a mediator to the king not being able to sleep on just the right night, from Haman coming in with a plot to kill Mordecai just as the king is eager to reward Mordecai, to Haman accidentally appearing to fall on Esther just as the king comes back into the room. Nothing happens by chance. From the smallest coincidences to the greatest reversals of fortune, God is active at every moment, on every page, in every verse, working for the good of his people. Now, in God's providence and care for us, we've been hearing uh, a lot about his providential rule over our lives over the summer. That he, that he works in all things, as we saw in the story of Joseph over the last few weeks, even turning what men might mean for evil to do good. Our Heavenly Father, who loves us, is inviting us again this morning to trust him, to entrust every detail of our lives to him, and to find rest in his providential care. But, but what nuance does the book of Esther add to that invitation to trust him? Well, it's surely the reassurance that we can be just as confident in his fatherly loving care in those times and those circumstances when it seems like he is most silent and absent. He is never absent. God is never absent from our lives. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And when we cannot see him or trace his hand in events, when life is hard, or even when just life is dull and slow, when we struggle with difficulties or hardships, sickness or hostilities, or even when nothing out of the ordinary seems to happen and we, we just feel stuck in the grind of mundane, everyday life, God is, at fact, in fact, at work in a million ways all around us. We can be assured He is at work in every detail of my life and your life, fulfilling his glorious plans and promises for his children. As we camp out in this book this month uh, and read and, and reread this story of Esther, it is, I said earlier on, a gift of God to us to deepen our confidence that he's working all things, every single thing, to protect us, preserve us, and ultimately to fulfill all of his most precious promises to us in Jesus. And we can trust him in this, not only because of the book of Esther, but even more so because of where Esther points us. Esther's tale is this great tale of a great reversal, but as we read it, we'll find our gaze repeatedly lifted and redirected to an even greater reversal. When Christ, our royal mediator, gave himself up for us to be condemned and crucified and killed on the very blackest of days, only to rise again on the third day, victorious and glorious from the grave, leaving sin and death and all enemies defeated in his wake. There has never been a greater or more glorious reversal than that one. And better yet, he has invited us to be swept up into that great reversal with him promising that all who put their trust in him will not perish in their sins, but will instead, in this incredible reversal of fortune, receive and enjoy eternal life with God forever, with unimaginable gladness, rejoicing, and just as we see through the pages of Esther, a whole lot of feasting. 
this is the good news of the gospel.